0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Institute of All Politics. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China-Asia program here at IWP. Um, for those who are new to IWP, we are a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. And we have seven master's programs, including two online. And we have a doctoral program, which is called Doctor of Statecraft and National Security. And we have 18 certificates of graduate study, as well as a continuing education program. So if you're interested in learning one of our programs, please do come um, talk to me after the event is over, and I can help you get connected with one of our recruiters. So please, um, before we begin um, the event, I ask you to mute all of your devices. And I'll give you um, a minute. <laughs> So today's event, oh, the mic is. So today's event is part of the China Lecture Series here at IWP, and today we have Dr. Suardi Enrico Suardi, who has um, graduated from our Executive MA program back in 2019, and we are very delighted to have um, one of our alumni today. And he will be presenting a lecture on a very unique topic, um, psychiatric um, analysis of Xi Jinping. So Dr. Enrico Suardi um, is Director of Psychiatry at St. Elizabeth's Hospital and Director of Forensic Services at the Ross Center in Washington, DC. He serves as a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Forensic Psychiatry, and as a faculty at St. Elizabeth's Elizabeth Hospital, Georgetown University, and George Washington University. He has also served as Chief of Child and Family Psychiatrist at the US State Department. Dr. Suwardi, thank you very much, and we lo- look forward to your um, presentation.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wang. Okay, so you
0: can just use the mic.
1: Yeah. Okay,
0: so click that one.
1: Right there. Yeah. Just bring it Okay. this should be working as well. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wong, for the kind introduction and for inviting me. And good afternoon, uh, everybody. Thank you for coming here. I'm always glad to be back at, uh, at IWP. Now, my talk today is the continuation of a, a conversation that I had with uh, some of you, maybe, or other people six months ago, approximately six months ago. It was a an overview of the involvement of the behavioral sciences in national security, uh, historical overview. And that, this is the, the last slide I had. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna really start from where I left it. And, uh, and from this list here, I picked the uh, topic of today, which is leadership analysis, uh, the indirect assessment of foreign leaders. And uh, the plan today is to present the profile of the uh, Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, and also to briefly discuss the why and how the US government uh, has assessed foreign leaders, what are some of the issues, and the way forward in the field. Um, Now, before I begin talking about uh, Xi Jinping, I have to say that as a psychiatrist, I am bound to the rules and ethical principles of the American Psychiatric Association. And one of them is known as Goldwater Rule. And what it is essentially is a prohibition for psychiatrists to assess and diagnose uh, people that they have not evaluated directly and that they've not consented to being evaluated. Now, there is an exception for psychiatrists to an extent who are involved in national security work, so long as they are operating under proper authority and with the right methods and in a confidential manner. But I am not, you know, involved in any government work. I do not represent any entities. All I say is just my um, my thought, and it's all based on open source. Just a little bit of a disclaimer here. Now, the story of the Goldwater Rule is interesting in itself. In 1964, a um, magazine called Fact polled a number of psychiatrists who were convened at the annual meeting of the organization and, uh, and asked, them, asked them if uh, then-Senator, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, was fit to be president and what came out of that was not pleasant in, 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 in many ways. And, um, and then uh, Senator Goldwater didn't appreciate, he sued, he won, and uh, because the APA, the American Psychiatric Association was indirectly involved, that's where this rule comes from. I don't, not only am uh, um, bound to it, but I also agree with it, just to be clear. All right, so I am gonna take uh, all of us back to 2011, to China. Um, the then Vice President Joe Biden is visiting uh, China and is uh, having dinner with Xi Jinping. It's a small group. Uh, it's a rather informal, you know, relaxed atmosphere. There's about eight people, including two interpreters. They're close collaborators. This is going to be one of several meetings that they will have of this nature, sort of informal, relaxed. And uh, Xi Jinping is the number two in China in 2011, but he is set to become the leader, right? And so there is a desire to get to know him, to understand who he is. And the conversation that night over dinner is uh, um, is, uh, about the, part of the conversation, is about the Arab Spring. Uh, the, the protests in the Middle East. And Xi Jinping is very concerned. And he's not just concerned about the Middle East, he's concerned about his own country and the, and the possibility that anarchy and chaos uh, could, be, could happen in his own country. So why is that? What is on his mind? Well, he talks about the history of China. But I will suggest that he has two things in mind. One is the history of China and two is his own personal history. And so today I have a little bit on China and then we will take a look at his life, at his narrative. And, we, and, and what I am going to highlight is how his personal narrative aligns with the collective historical uh, narrative of China. All right, what I have here, this paragraph, is the opening of the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's a classic of Chinese literature. Um, it's a, it, it's a, uh, it, it was published in uh, the 14th century. It refers to events occurred in the 2nd century. Um, um, but it, it, it's a sort of an epic novel. So it's beyond the time, you know? it's, it's a, it's a forever Uh, you know, lesson. Now, all things under heaven means the empire, means the Chinese empire, means the Chinese civilization, the millenarian uh, Chinese civilization. And this quote has been used to signify that uh, there is an ingrained expectation that the history of China is a, a sequence of periods of unity and disunity, um, uh, order and chaos. And so if there is order, one can expect that there'll be chaos at some point and vice versa. Now the last um, period, uh, the most recent uh, period of chaos, according to the Chinese history books, is referred to as the century of national humiliation. Um, national humiliation that China suffered at the hands of foreign powers, Western powers and Japan, starting the Opium Wars and then ending, according to this narrative, uh, with the the foundation of a People's Republic of China in 1949 by the Chinese Communist Party. And as the story goes, the, the party, the CCP, is leading the country towards a great Rejuvenation uh, that will reestablish the primacy of China in the world by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the PRC. Now, of course, the party is doing this on its own terms, not following political influence, actually neutralizing foreign inf- influences, uh, no political models from outside. Now, Chinese people call their country zhongguo, uh, that means uh, the state in the center of the map. And uh, modern China is, is, a, is a mosaic of ethnicity and languages, of course, uh, a superpower, a rising superpower that may become, again, the largest economy in the world, as it was in the past. But to be clear, what I'm highlighting here is this collective historical narrative of order and chaos, unity and disunity, trauma and growth. Now, the the CCP is the, one can say, uh, the current dynasty of this imperial civilization, and it is in its fifth generation. Everything is in China is set to uh, serve the interests of the party, including the armed forces, you know, the, the gun, the uh, courts and security services, the knife, uh, the propaganda machine and academia, the pen. Right? And everything works in a top-down fashion. Um, uh, and uh, I have here sort of the pyramid of power as it is currently. Um, at the base, you see uh, over 90 million members of the Communist Party, right? And at the top, of course, um, uh, Xi Jinping since 2012. And uh, right uh, beneath him, uh, the, the, new stand, the, the, the new members of the uh, standing committee of, of the Politburo, um, and then the Politburo members. And all of them are loyalists of Xi Jinping now. So he has consolidated his power very much. There are no more, you know, Hu Jintao or Zhang Zemin factions, at least mm, visibly. Now I'm gonna um, talk a little bit about Xi Jinping now. So moving from from China to, you know, our uh, a person of interest here. Um, are, uh, uh, Xi Jinping. So um, a little bit of demographics. Demographics is uh, 69, and Xi is the last name, um, and uh, he's married to Tang Li who is uh, a, and was uh, already when they got married, very famous uh, because she's a popular, she's a former popular uh, singer, uh, opera, and folk singer who joined the PLA, the People Liberation Army, in 18, in the cultural division and rose through the ranks to an equivalent of a major general rank because of her uh, art. Together, they have uh, a daughter who's the only child of Xi Jinping. Um, she keeps a very low profile. This could be her picture or may not be, but there are few pictures that circulate heavily censored everything has to do with um, with her um, but we know that uh, she studied and this is open source so um, studied at Harvard undergrad English and psychology and then it uh, looks looks like she went back to China and did postgrad studies there um, and maybe married at this point but keeps a very low profile um, mr. Uh, Xi Jinping was married before, had a brief marriage, um, uh, and uh, um, is divorced from his first wife, who was, at the time, um, was the, uh, the daughter of a person who, was at the time, was the uh, Chinese ambassador to the UK. Um, this lady here is the second wife of his uh, brother, um, interestingly, also um, a former actress and singer in the PLA, and interestingly, also significantly younger than uh, um, than her husband. Um, and uh, Mr. Xi Jinping is a graduate of Tsinghua University. Uh, he did his undergrad in chemical engineering. And I'll say a little bit about that because it's an interesting thing. Um, he was. Um, accepted as a student peasant, as we will see. Um, and he did much later postgrad studies in law, which really is Marxist law. Um, there is a dissertation uh, on, on agricultural policy that apparently he authored, but where did he find the time to do that? He was already a high level official, right? but, that's, but that's the story. Now, Xi Jinping has been referred here uh, uh, referred to as the chairman of everything. And uh, you can see that there is an impressive list of titles. This is from the Brookings. Um, uh, but make no mistakes, the, the most important title of all um, is that the one, the, the the general secretary of the Communist Party. This is a This is a Leninist system and the the secretary of the party is is the person in charge at every level of society, in every organization. Um, uh, His policies, I've listed some on the left here, have been uh, uh, assertive, um, both in a transformation, in the domestic and international arena. And he has consolidated his power uh, like no, nobody else in China other than Mao before him. Um, he has abolished the uh, terms uh, in a constitution, the two, uh, two terms, uh, and so there is no limit now. And so this could be a, a chairmanship of everything for life. Huh? Um, um, we're going to see a little bit how he rose to power. Yeah, there is tremendous hardship at some point early in his life, as we will see, but his adult career uh, really began from the center of the state, in what, in what one could describe as a plum job that he had through the connections of his networks of his father. He was the um, he was the personal secretary of the minister of defense. Um, but then after that, you know, and it's the same year of his divorce from his first wife, he chose to uh, go to the periphery of the state um, and then work his way up. He started from county level, you know, in China it's county, uh, prefecture, and, and then a province, right? And um, so all his way up, this is a, not an uncommon upward route for um, Chinese officials. So to go out to the periphery and then come back to the center. And in 1984, he he was already selected, eyes were already on him and uh, he was selected among 600 promising early career officials um, for sort of a fast lane. Um, And the fast lane was really in the coastal uh, Fujian province, one that is facing Taiwan. Um, 1983, he, you know, is featured by Chinese TV. It's a it's a nice family portrait, portrait of uh, Xi Jinping, his wife, and their at that point one year daughter. Um, Of course, not a coincidence that Chinese TV features him. There is there are eyes on him is on the rise. And in 1997, he becomes one of the 300 uh, top uh, officials in the country uh, when he uh, makes it to the Central Committee of the CCP. Um, 2002 really reaches uh, a very senior level. He's the head of one of the 31 Chinese provinces, uh, autonomous regions, and municipalities. And then he really reaches the sky in 2007 when he... He makes it to the uh, standing committee of the Politburo, not only, but he's the number two. Uh, he's the one who follows Hu Jintao when they all come out. right? So he's the number two, he's the heir parent. So I wanna talk a little bit about his, uh, where he comes from, um, his, his family. Uh, his parents were children soldiers. Of the CCP, both joined the the party as 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 soldiers in their early teens. Um, it was the second union for his father, um, and uh, the mother, who's still living, and is ninety six, is much younger. Um, but uh, the uh, um, the mother. Uh, became a cadre of the CCP, worked uh, all her life as a cadre of the of the party, and uh, she was she worked at the party central school. The father was a very important uh, figure. Um, he was uh, during the revolution uh, the political commissar of a military region, hence the ties with the the the, the, the PLA. Um, and, uh, uh, and then after the, the communists uh, took power, he occupied top government posts. He, make, he made it to one of the vice premiership. Um, so the family resided in a military yard of the imperial compound that had been taken over by the uh, Chinese, uh, that, by the communist elite. And Xi Jinping attended schools that were designed for the Kids of this uh, revolutionary elite. At at that point, boarding school started in in primary school, so in first grade. So he was away from home, not very far, but away from home um, during the week and would go back home uh, the weekend. Now all this is a relatively privileged but also stern uh, upbringing with a lot of indoctrination. All good until 1962, when, the, when he's nine, Xi Jinping, and his father su- suffers a, a quick and a major political downturn. He's accused of covert anti-Mao uh, propaganda, and uh, he loses everything. He's sent to work in a factory because he's under investigation and uh, And so overnight things change for 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 this family, and they they are permitted to stay in in, uh, in the school, the kids, but uh, you know they are bullied essentially right? and uh, uh, Now things go from bad to much worse in 1966 when the cultural revolution begins. so the this family is already troubled, right? The father is already. Under investigation at this point, there is a, a public struggle session against the, the father, and he, he uh, escapes the you know the death for, for for not much, and and uh, and but is imprisoned and kept in isolation. The mother is sent to work outside Beijing, um, and uh, um, and uh, uh, the home their home is ransacked. The school is de facto disbanded, so uh, Xi Jinping and his siblings are essentially fending for themselves at this point, with some help from extended family. Um, uh, there is a time when he's homeless, uh, when he's detained, uh, when when he's uh, uh, threatened uh, by the Red Guards, death threats, um, and this is a. You know, a thirteen-year-old, fourteen-year-old boy at that point, point. and one of his older half sisters from the first union of the father apparently died by suicide in this in this context. Come 1968, you know, full uh, gear uh, cultural revolution. Mao is thinking, what What are we going to do with this? All these kids were out of school. There is all this uh, confusion, right? Um, Well, he decides that the urban youth, partially educated, must be re-educated by the peasants, must be re-educated in the countryside. So they have to be sent down to the countryside. This is the sent down youth. It turns into the internal migration of over 17 million uh, adolescents, um, uprooted and sent to the countryside, scattered around. Xi Jinping and his uh siblings among them. He ends up in a he ends up um, in a in a village called Liangjahe. Uh, this is in a Shaanxi province, Yanan region. The living conditions there are rather primitive. Work is certainly um, strenuous. Uh, Nutrition is inadequate, hygiene is inadequate, goes without saying. It's also even hard to communicate with the locals because of the dialects. So not a surprise that this 15-year-old boy uh, is not compliant at this point, becomes a chain smoker because it's the way to get breaks from work. Um, and then, like most other youths in that position, he escapes, and it tries to be a fugitive. But his family, um, interestingly, this region is where the father's family came from. So he tried to uh, he tried to escape to them, but they wouldn't they wouldn't take him because you know he's in, he's in trouble, right? So he makes it back to Beijing, but in 1969, is arrested, detained. And thrown into hard labor. And it's only in 1970, so at this point is 17, that he, he returns to this village, and he returns there with a completely different mindset. He, he, he goes back with a box full of, of books that he has been able to collect. Is determined to give himself the education that was denied to him. He's physically grown. As much, as much stronger. He's stronger than an average person. And his work ethics is amazing. And uh, uh, he, he really uh, finds purpose and a sense of belonging. And uh, his uh, plan is to join the Communist Party. So, he, first, the Communist Youth League. He's rejected um, uh, seven times because of his family background but eventually accepted. Then he applies to the party for membership to the party, again rejected several times and then he makes it. So he doesn't take no for an answer. He continues to apply, right? And and then from there, he becomes the secretary of the party uh, in in the village, the, the section in the village. And from there is able to apply to university and after several attempts, uh, makes it uh, as a peasant student, right? Peasant student soldier is a group because, you know, uh, universities have been semi-closed during the Cultural Revolution. This is the tail end and they are reopening. But there are all these kids who have not done, gone to secondary school, right? So they they are admitted for their um, record as as, you know, for for being uh, peasants, huh? which he was actually. So he makes it back to Beijing. And this is the end of this seven years, pivotal years of his life. Um, and these are some quotes I found from an interview he gave in the early 2000s, um, which are, I think are quite striking. Um, so if we can show maybe a minute of this. This is Xi Jinping talking about that time of his life, of course, in positive terms, you know, 在陕本插队的七年 we can stop here and go back to but you get the idea that he is uh, he's talking about you know the positive that he got out of that, and uh, uh, this sort of mysterious and sacred uh, that, you know thing that he refers to it's quite interesting. Um, can we go back to the presentation Oh. No, I think we need to get out of that. Yeah. Then go back to... So Chinese people uh, of his generation identify with this narrative, uh, with this personal narrative of tribulation. uh, And appreciate how he overcame his tribulations. You know, they have their own in their history, in their family history. There is also winning political narrative here because the, the place where he spent those years is part of the Yanan region, which is the cradle of the um, Red Revolution. It's where uh, Mao and his followers uh, settled down after the Long March. So it's the Yellow Earth, that's how they call it. And it's, it's the place where the revolution really uh, won and, uh, and, uh, and became you know, the PRC. Um, So, Xi Jinping and his family were, without questions, the victims of the aggression of the communist authorities. Um, His psychological defense was to identify with the aggressor. Um, The party was the only game in town for ambitious, resilient young men, and he chose to become (coughs) rather than red to survive and thrive. Uh, there's a lot of flexibility here, a lot of resilience, a lot of ambition, and altogether, that's how he grew. He grew out of his trauma, um, and uh, and so I use the concept of post-traumatic growth here: um, spiritual development, finding new possibilities in life, active problem solving, finding meaning and purpose. It checks all the boxes of a post-traumatic growth inventory, right? Except maybe for uh, forging uh, close personal relationships, at least according to the source who knew him well at some point and that that the State Department interviewed between 2007 and 2009 multiple times, there is a cable That has been leaked by WikiLeaks and is available online. And there is a profile that the State Department made based on these interviews. And so he is described. um, Xi Jinping is described here as um, by this um, person who knew him um, in his uh, twenties and and thirties, describing him as a generous and loyal. Someone who had the answers, if you have a question, if you have a problem, you go to him and he helps you find the answers, but also a little distant and hard to read as if, as if he's looking beyond you. But to be clear, what I've I, uh, highlighted here is a personal narrative of, of trauma and growth, um, of chaos and order, right? And again, how that aligns with the historical and collective narrative of, of the country, now, only in those years um, of the Cultural Revolution, but also, you know, a millenarian history. Uh, And how also there is in him a deep fear of anarchy and chaos. Remember how we started a conversation with Xi Jinping having dinner with uh, uh, Joe Biden and talking about his fear of anarchy and chaos. I think that's interesting that his fear of uh, anarchy and chaos is displayed displaced away from the communist party to whatever jeopardizes the absolute power and control of the communist party in China. Now I have a, a little bit about his mother here because you know a lot is known about the father the father was this very important um, political figure. Then he, he got in trouble, he was in prison. Um, uh, but in 1978, after the death of Mao, the end of the Cultural Revolution, and with Deng coming to power, he, was very, he had been very close to Deng Xiaoping. And so he was fully rehabilitated, not only, but he was put in charge of the first special economic zone in China. And Guangdong uh, uh, province, and 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 from there, he made it to the Politburo. In uh, then he got in trouble again because he spoke, not publicly, but against Tiananmen, and so then they kind of retired him. But a lot is known about the father and the the role of the father. But I thought the I think the mother is underestimated. Um, she she's definitely not a homemaker. She worked and lived away from home herself, would come back in the weekend. Um, when uh, Xi Jinping became a fugitive, uh, went back to Beijing, she and family members um, basically convinced him that he had to go back to the village. You know There was no way uh, outside the party. He had to make his way back to the party. And when he started his career, it was really the mother who worked the networks of the father, writing notes and saying, you know, this is, this is the son of such and such, right? And um, consider him. And then when he, when he reached a uh, high level uh, of, of power, she made a rule according to which uh, family members would not live in the same province. And this is the stave of, you know, corruption. Hmm? So I have here a little clip uh, with the mother, um, and if you, if we, we are able to click here, we should be able to see a minute of that. And there may be a, it's a YouTube CCS thing, s- so as my college
0: project.
1: let's just. Uh, um, we
0: now sell our wheel covers all around the world.
1: Okay, skip. So it's Mother's Day. I think it's two thousand and two, two thousand and three. in don't make mistakes,
0: right?
1: Thank you, Sean. I mean, it goes on a little bit, but you get a sense of how proud she is, how affectionate her tone is. Um but also how she's emphasizing the importance of his work over you know visiting the, the family for the spring festival and, and Mother's Day. And uh if we get out of this, maybe so all I presented here is a psychobiographical—it's called psychobiographical approach to profiling uh, leaders. Hmm? But in addition to, which is a qualitative way to to do this, right? there is also a quantitative approach um, that is uh, that, that is empirically based, and it's based on the analysis of the content of speeches and writings. Hmm? Uh, And I just want to mention it, Um, uh, leadership trait analysis is um, uh, developed by Margaret Herman. Uh, For example, works on the assumption that leaders will use certain words more frequently if the content, if the meaning is salient to them. And so there is a a software uh, that uh, performs the analysis and scoring for seven variables and then comparing the scores to a norming group of over 100 leaders who have been uh, profiled like this. I found a study that compared uh, Xi uh, Jinping to Mao. They looked at uh, speeches of Mao and uh, uh, about 80 speeches of Xi Jinping given between 2012 and 2014. And I thought the conclusion was interesting because you know, Xi Jinping came out uh, quite different from Mao. More of a bureaucrat than a revolutionary, not a, a disruptor like Mao was. Um, but this is 2012, 2014. I I, I don't know after that what uh, what would be like. Now, so who is uh, uh, with all this? You know, who, who is Xi Jinping? He's a princeling. He's a red aristocrat. Um, uh, first-generation revolutionaries were his parents. He grew up in an imperial palace, um, but he was sent down to the yellow earth to be re-educated in the cradle of the revolution. So he lost all that privilege as a, as a teen. He outgrew his trauma by identifying with the aggressor, the party. He taught the line of the party, ascended methodically to the pinnacle of power, thanks to loyalty and apparent malleability. But since then, he has masterfully consolidated his grip on power. Xi Jinping is a man of ideological faith, is a nationalist who is determined to avenge China's century of trauma and chaos, humiliation putting back China at the center of the map in a new era of growth and order. He's a man on a mission, uh, a transformational leader. He's gonna be 70 this year and legacy matters. So uh, if you know the expression of Deng Xiaoping, uh, hide your strength and bide your time, that doesn't seem to be on his agenda that's not what China has been about under his rule so this ends the the profile uh, that I have prepared and now I'm gonna discuss a little bit the how and and why of you know uh, uh, foreign uh, leaders uh, assessment um, now the indirect assessment of foreign leaders has been part of the uh, of the mission of uh, the government of the intelligence community since its inception, as we will see, why? Because leadership analysis matters. You know, the the conduct of international politics at high level is, to an extent, personal. Depends really on understanding what are the intentions of the counterparts. What makes them tick? And going back to. Going back to when the OSS, you know, Office of Strategic Services, was created, um, uh, the leader that they wanted to be profiled was Adolf Hitler, of course, and uh, um, the the task was assigned to two teams. Eventually, uh, one report was um, was uh, prepared and has been. Uh, uh, published has been declassified and published in the 1970s, so it's available. If it's it's a book that can be um, purchased, and um, so um, William Langer, the psychoanalyst at Harvard, his brother was a history professor and one of the founders of the OSS, and so he was he he had the lead of this project, which was in fact multidisciplinary work, um, and they went through as much as raw data as they could. You know they. Looked at speeches, writings, you know, videos of rallies, but also collected accounts for a variety of informants, including medical reports. Uh, they, they were able to, to talk to um, his, uh, his, um, his general practitioner uh, earlier in his life. And uh, I think the most interesting thing about this um, work, uh, which is heavily psychoanalytical, because that's what, uh, what it was like, Um, is that they predicted correctly that if confronted with certain defeat, uh, Hitler would would, uh, kill himself, which he did Now, in the aftermath of uh, World War II and after the National Security Act of 1947, CIA was established, the agency has had the lead in performing foreign leaders' assessment. the biographical information have been collected at the, at the CIA library um, and in-depth clinical and psychological assessments uh, um, were tasked to a specialized program within the Office of Medical Services in collaboration with other offices. In 1973, under the, lead, uh, the um, directorship of Gerald Post, a psychiatrist, um, Uh, All these activities were consolidated in a center for the analysis and political behavior in the director of science and technology at CIA. And uh, one of the high points, you know, uh, for them was for this team was the preparation of the 1978 Camp David summit. So they prepared profiles for the Carter administrations of, of of Begin and Sadat. And uh, they were very helpful actually in in what uh, turned out to be a a, a successful uh, endeavor, right? Uh, The peace accord between Egypt and and Israel. So definitely a high point recognized by President Carter. Um, 1986, uh, uh, there was a bureaucratic reorganization. Um, The office was renamed. Uh, Ellen Botner was an economist by training. Took the lead, and uh, uh, and at that year, it's interesting that this office was one of the busiest offices in the in the agency. It produced twice as many reports as all the regional offices combined. Now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the reorganization of the intelligence community, and also as a result of one of the low points that they had, uh, which was the leak of. Uh, a controversial profile of the leader of A.T. Uh, Bertrand Aristide, um, the office was uh, uh, disbanded and the analysts were reassigned to regional bureaus. Now, a few psychiatrists have uh, played a significant role in the following uh, decades. Uh, Lawrence Cove, who died like Gerald Post in 2020, um, uh, and uh, Daniel Tsao, who is currently the Chief of the Medical, Psychological and Health Security Office. But the overall analytic emphasis has shifted over this time from the individual's psychological makeup to the context. Now, what are the products of this work? How does well, this work comes in three forms. Um, There are sentences that are part of the usually two-page long bios of uh, foreign uh, counterparts that uh, people in government read before meeting them. A few sentences about the individual makeup. now another uh, product is uh, consists in paragraphs that uh, about individual leaders that may be included in uh, assessments of countries and regions, so larger documents. And finally, there can be standalone in-depth profile of leaders that are of particular interest. Um, but these are usually read by junior or mid-level um, policymakers who may brief their uh, their seniors. So, what are some of the issues? Um, I would say not unlike uh, not unlike the, the dialectic relationship between intelligent al- analysts and leaders and policymakers. Um, uh, leaders and, to- and policymakers have uh, direct access to their counterparts. And also they have information about the, the policy. Uh, policy making that is up to date and that the analysts may not uh, receive. And there can be good reasons to limit the information sharing, but a result, as a result of that, the leadership analysts may not be fully aware of the policy options that are being developed, uh, implemented, um, and may not be privy to the most recent development. Now, leaders are, tend to be uh, action-oriented, you know, they are self-assured, they always operate under pressure, um, and like to receive short, clear answers, right? They, they tend to, some of them, tend to make their own implicit assessments, may not appreciate the nuances and the benefit of the analytical process. But on the other hand, analysts' prediction can proved to be wrong, or controversial, or especially if they don't support the views of the policymakers and the leaders, um, and uh, or they can be not useful if they're they don't take a position. So anodyne. So been thinking of way forward, you know, uh, ideally, leadership analysts would have access to a broad, uh, a broad range of, of information and could be involved in the debriefing of people who have direct contact with foreign leaders and their close collaborators. In-depth studies of uh, prominent figures who stay in power for a long time require longitudinal approach, multidisciplinary. And uh, leadership analysis is a should be a, a career track. Um, And linguistic and cultural competencies are key to uh, this uh, team's ability to really track the target target over time. Um, Now, the the, uh, quantitative approach, empirically-based framework uh, of uh, Margaret Herman that I already mentioned, uh, is, is useful in addition to the Psychobiographical approach, which is still in use and valid, and and then there are now novel psycholinguistic and sentiment analysis. Um, that are uh, that use artificial intelligence and machine learning and uh, can offer insights uh, into uh, behavior um, uh, that are different from the traditional qualitative approach. Now, as I move to the conclusion here, I want to put a plug in uh, now for the concept of strategic empathy. Um, One may wonder what does empathy have to do with all this? Um, What does empathy have to do with uh, the brutal nature of international conflict? Empathy, should it be relegated to international aid, peace studies? Um, So I want to make a difference here between, uh, I want to highlight the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is about feeling like the other, agreeing with the other. Um, empathy is not. Um, empathy is about understanding the viewpoint of the other, their intentions and motivation, but not locking steps with the other. Um, and, uh, and strategic empathy means doing all of that with an eye on the national interest, right? Um, so empathy is not a is not a trait. It's not somebody something that some people inherit and others don't, right? It's a skill, and it, it can be acquired and it can be developed. So I'm gonna go back to the way I entitled this, you know, the memo to the president, and I'm gonna try to apply this strategic empathy idea, right? And concept um, and make a suggestion. My suggestion is the title of of this presentation. Um, Essentially, a suggestion is to go and meet Xi Jinping in the village where he spent uh, the good part of those seven years. Literally sit with him in the cave dwelling where he uh, where he is slept, um, and uh, uh, this is the place where he grew out of uh, horrible trauma by identifying with the, with the party that was the the communist authorities. Um, this place has become an open air museum uh, that is visited by thousands of people every year, um, and I would suggest to the president to actually think of him as this remarkable young man that he was at that point um, when he shakes his hands and to have him talk about that time, you know, for as long as, as it goes. I mean, the question is, is uh, behind this suggestion is if a strategic use of empathy could provide a key to managing uh, and winning conflicts without war. Um, You know, demonstrating and we strive to understand the other's viewpoint doesn't mean sympathizing, doesn't mean agreeing, right? For example, forensic psychiatrists interview individuals who have committed or stand accused of committing egregious acts. Empathy is part of the job description, not sympathy, right? And tactical empathy is used in negotiations, um, including hostage negotiations conducted by specialized law enforcement personnel, not because they sympathize with the hostage-taking. And there is an ongoing discussion about the need for strategic empathy in the international arena. Mm -hmm. Um, International conflicts are addressed through the prism of politics and power relationships, but we should not forget that historical fears, uh, traumas, humiliation, underlying rational judgments the geopolitics of, of emotion, as, uh, and as an author has written. And here I have one last plug. Uh, if leadership analysis is conducted with these premises, it can inform how we talk to our foreign counterparts and their, the public and their public, and how we persuade them to agree with us or at least disagree within limits we agree on. So I'm alluding to a psychopolitical, linguistic and cultural death tracking and focus uh, that can be valuable uh, for contribution to strategic uh, interagency work that takes place at the level of National Security Council. So I'm shifting here from leadership analysis to influence, which could be another topic, another topic for a conversation here, the psychology of influence. But this is it for today.
0: Well, thank you very much, <laughs> Dr. Okay. It was such an interesting um, lecture, and um, we'll take questions now. So please um, raise your hand if you have any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very informative. I wondered why you left out probably the most important period in his development, which would have been around when there was a time mark when he was 18 to 22, which was the opening of Nixon with Mao in 72. How old was he then?
1: Um, 19, 18, so. 19? Uh, yeah, to maybe. The
0: and that this, this, the, the disappearance of Chairman Mao and the Gang of Poor, This would have been the most significant time mark in his life. How would that have impacted him?
1: Yeah, um, I mean that's a that's a very interesting uh, question here. Um, you know, in reading the biographies of of uh, of Xi Jinping that are available, and I, I showed here some uh, of them. Uh, it's not a thing that has been highlighted. You know that's, I guess, why I'm not uh, highlighting he- here. But you know, he was um, uh, between the age of 15 and 22. He was in and out of that village, and uh, uh, and he and, and at you know at 18, 19, he really was working hard to make his way into the uh, the party. You know, and become active in. In, in in a political life, and then his eyes were on, um, you know, university studies because he knew that that was a way to to get ahead. Um, you know, the the opening, uh, you know, the, the it is not something that I uh, I don't know how much, you know, uh, affected here uh, him. And there is no interview that I found where he talked about that uh, and how that impacted him at that time in his life. But it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. Okay, we'll take the next question.
0: Uh, one thing you didn't talk too much about was how he views international relations more broadly. Uh, a lot of this is obviously about his experience within China, but what, if anything, did you learn from how he views other countries China's
1: relations with other nations, uh, you know, communism versus Western society, that kind of thing. So, how he views uh, the relationship with China with other uh, with other countries? Well, one thing that you learn about him is that he has read a lot, especially in those years, and has read literature and history um, of other countries. So, and that's something that he highlights, um, and the people around him, uh, you know, talk about how well read and how interested he in, is in, uh, uh, in the history and literature of our other countries. I mean, he is, you know, the new era uh, that he is uh, working uh, to establish is an era where China is uh, is at the center of the world map. And so he, uh he, he is uh he's a leader who wants to uh reestablish the primacy of his of his country and uh, uh and and, uh, and so there is also a charming uh, element to this now uh, if you follow the the news now there is this charm offensive right so it's definitely a mix of uh, of of a spectrum of of tools that he uses he and, uh, you know, the Communist Party use, and that includes, um, uh, you know, the, uh, a soft side, but as we know also uh, sharp, uh, uh, sharpness.
0: We can take a few more questions.
1: How seriously that the U.S. I see community in profiling C, recognizing that his propaganda, he believes in his own propaganda that he has to, during his term, has to reunite with Taiwan. And uh, how serious that that's American believe that. I know everybody, all of the press says so, but how seriously do you think that they well, I can't speak for I don't speak for the intelligence community or the government of U.S. or any country, of course. I right? as I said, I'm just a, I'm just a psychiatrist and a, and, a, um, and I, I did some work at IWP, and I'm very interested in this. To answer your question though, and give you my thought here, is that this is a key issue for for the Chinese leadership, and the reason is that the. Uh, the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the, uh, the CCP uh, rests on several pillars. Uh, one of them is, uh, is the reunification of China. So one, no. one is the, the liberation of China from Japan, but that was done as it is a knowledge by the CCP by the United Front, like the United Front with the, the nationalists right So liberating China from Japan first pillar second pillar the reunification of china has that been accomplished no because uh, taiwan is not unified right so uh, so that's but that's that's fundamental and then the third pillar is the 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 opening up reform and opening up and the economic development that and now and then there is a fourth pillar now that is this great rejuvenation and the great rejuvenation is about uh, you know it's also about unifying uh, China right so it's it's a I don't think that's something that they can uh, they they can uh, do without right that's just my take you know having based on what I read well due to the limited
0: time we'll just take one more question for today
1: Hi, uh, so based off the, um, I guess based off the profile you have on uh, Xi Jinping, how gingerly or aggressively do you think um, America should approach conversations that, um, that are sensitive, especially in China and US relations like Taiwan or um, maybe even the nuclear crisis? Um, how, do you th- how do you think we should approach those conversations? You say gingerly or aggressive. Uh, Aggressively. Well, I always think about in in terms of this as as I've been taught here that there is a spectrum, right? There is is an orchestra, right? There are different instruments and tools, and uh, you know the way I think of this is, you know, you think about the soft side, you know, of that of that approach, right? But I, I do think that strategic empathy is something to to really explore. And and, uh, and strategic empathy, you know, really understanding the, the the counterpart, really understanding, you know, how they think, what they write, and using using their words in translation and translated back, you know, um, to 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 have a conversation, right? Um, and uh, um, that that would be my that would be my choice, right? Um, but I. I'm not going to say that, uh, that uh, deterrence, strategic deterrence, doesn't matter here, right? Um, of course, you know, um, there is a, a spectrum and there, are, and there is hard power and, and there is soft power.